0: You're listening to The Pet Factor, news on pet health, wellness, and the latest in veterinary medicine. Hi, welcome to the next edition of The Pet Factor. I'm Dr. Jim Hosek. And I'm Brittany. And uh, this week we're going to talk about a a syndrome that affects cats. Um, The technical name for it is hepatic lipidosis, Mm -hmm. but it's also known as yellow cat disease or fatty liver disease in cats. Um, and they present because they come to us, they're yellow. Their eyes are yellow. Their skin mm-hmm. is yellow. Their gums actually turn orange because yeah. the the red in their gums and the yellow makes orange. <laughs> so it's something that we see typically in um, middle-aged cats, but any cat can be affected. But usually it's fat cats that have stopped eating for some reason.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And there's a lot of reasons that can make them stop eating. Um, there's the primary reasons where some liver problem is causing it and they just stop eating for some reason and... It just causes their body to uh, break down the fat, and then that fat gets into the liver and causes it to swell. It can also occur secondary to a lot of different diseases. Pancreatitis is common, diabetes. Mm-hmm. Um, with diabetes, you sometimes get a condition called ketoacidosis. Yeah. Inflammatory bowel disease that can cause vomiting and diarrhea and decreased appetite. Um, bile, duct, and liver disease, so primary problems going on there. Cancer. There's also toxins that have been associated with this, certain antibiotics uh, like tetracycline. Um, Pregnant cats have been known to develop this because their body's breaking down a lot of fat to feed Mm. those kittens if they're not getting good nutrition. So basically anything that's going to decrease their food intake and uh, cause their their body to start breaking down its own fat. So cats actually have this propensity to build up fat in their liver cells. It's, uh, when there's a large release from the body stores, it overwhelms them, and these liver cells start to swell. And then that affects the liver's ability to clear uh, the bile out. So the bilirubin and the bile start backing up in the blood, okay. and it just makes these cats sick very quickly. Yeah. Um, we don't know exactly you know, what causes them to start not eating in the first place a lot of times, mm-hmm. but it's going to happen mostly with fat, fatter cats. So if they have yeah. a lot of fat already... They do know that cats have a higher ratio of the visceral or abdominal fat to the subcutaneous fat, or the fat underneath their skin. Mm-hmm. It can be triggered triggered by what they think an insulin deficiency, so mm. the insulin's not there to help them uh, properly metabolize their fat. Um, low protein and high fat diets can sometimes do it. They can their body's not able to oxidize and process the fat quick enough, so the liver tries to store it, and it causes it to to swell up. Mm. Oftentimes, these cats are presented to us with rapid weight loss. Yeah. So the owners know knows they're losing a lot of weight and they're not eating.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so oftentimes, we're the ones that find out that the cat is jaundiced or icteric—that mm-hmm. yellow color to their skin.
1: Yeah. A lot of times, we'll see um, from an owner having traveled and a cat doesn't Mm -hmm. eat while they're at home, then they come in saying, my cat's not doing well, and we'll see like yellow skin and then the eyes.
0: Or if a cat got trapped someplace and the people weren't aware of it Mm -hmm. or it was outside and got lost for a while and wasn't eating properly, that can be quite common to see that. Mm -hmm. Um, The vomiting and diarrhea are often associated with this as well because of the liver failure Mm -hmm. and decreased liver function. Weakness, their blood sugars are often very low. Unless they're diabetics, then it can be very high. We'll also see tiredness. Uh, They're just too weak to really do much. Mm -hmm. Hypersalivation or excess salivation in cats is uh, something that's oftentimes associated with liver disease. Mm. So if you have a drooling cat, we're always going to think, yeah, let's look in the liver once we've ruled out anything going (laughs) on in your mouth. And then they're going to be dehydrated. They might be a little depressed mentally. Yeah. Um, There's a condition called hepatic encephalopathy. When the liver's not functioning, you get a buildup of ammonia and other toxins in the blood that can cause seizures. Mm. It happens rarely in this, but it can happen. And a lot of cats will have decreased uh, clotting function because the liver does synthesize a lot of the clotting factors that make the blood clot normally. Mm. So when the liver can't function normally, you can see those things get decreased. So when we're doing our blood tests, we're going to see maybe a a mild anemia on these cats to to maybe a more moderate anemia. That's typically non-regenerative, which is typical of the anemia we see with chronic disease. We saw this with some of the other diseases we've talked about. And that's stress leukogram, where we're going to see an increase in the neutrophils, the pus cells, a decrease in the lymphocytes. Um, And that's very typical in a lot of diseases. Anytime they're stressed out, we'll see that. And that can help us distinguish you know, a cat that's been chronically sick versus a cat that's just having an acute problem. Mm-hmm. There's also a condition called poikilocytosis, mm-hmm. and this affects the red blood cells. So the red blood cells don't look normal on the smear. They normally look like little flattened donuts. So if they get an altered shape, and if there's generally more than 10% of them are abnormally shaped, that can tell you that that's going on. Mm-hmm. And that can be because of the uh, inability of the cell membranes to get the right fats to make the membranes function properly. Um, it could be under oxidative stress that affects the, the membrane's flexibility. Hmm. So it just doesn't make that nice, normal shape. And the blood chemistry, we're going to see the liver enzymes be really high. Yeah. Typically, the alkaline phosphatase in most cats, GGT, can be affected in a lot of them, ALT, AST. Bilirubin is often elevated in these cats, and we know that because they've got the yellow skin. Yeah. <laughs> they can have a low blood urea, nitrogen, and glucose, like we said before, and that's because the liver is actually... Um, Involved in synthesizing those compounds or releasing them. So if the liver's not functioning properly, it can't produce enough of these, then we'll see those go down. And it can affect some of our electrolytes. The potassium, yeah. phosphorus, chloride, magnesium can be decreased as well. And that's typically because they've not been eating. Yeah. So they're not taking in these nutrients that they need to for them to function properly. And like we mentioned before, a lot of them have problems in the clotting tests. Mm-hmm. So we're gonna wanna do clotting tests before we start doing other procedures we'll talk about later. There's also, when we're palpating or x-raying the cats, we might see the liver's enlarged. And it's very typical because it really does cause the liver to swell. Mm -hmm. Uh, Biopsies can be helpful in diagnosing, but certainly not necessary because we've been diagnosing this a (laughs) lot before we had the ability to do those um, biopsies. Ultrasound, you can see some characteristic changes. Again, usually you know what's going on there, but you may be looking for some primary problem That's why you would ultrasound the liver, looking for a tumor or something else there. Mm -hmm. When we see cats like this, we have to differentiate this between other diseases that do happen in cats. They can actually get a bile duct rupture, which can cause the bilirubin to leak out and cause the blood levels to go up. Mm. Cholangiohepatitis, which is just inflammation of the bile duct system in the liver, cholelithiasis which is gallbladder stones oh. so those can certainly cause an obstruction and cause elevation in bilirubin um, diabetes can present with these symptoms pancreatitis yeah. um, there's a condition a congenital uh, condition called portosystemic shunt we'll probably talk about in a future show where the blood bypasses liver and that can be uh, something that can present very similar you can have the elevated uh, bilirubin and other liver enzymes mm. cancer uh, toxins and then that condition we talked about in cats, the triaditis, which is the inflammatory bowel disease, the pancreatitis, the hepatitis uh, can present like this as well. So treatment is actually pretty straightforward. We need to get nutrition into these cats. Mm -hmm. You know, we want to start it as as uh, soon as possible. The thing we want to avoid is force feeding because this can actually induce a fear of the food or an aversion to the food by yeah. the cats. So, if you sit there and you're trying to put food down their mouth all the time, every hour, they're going to get really tired of that and they're going to bite someone and mm-hmm. they're just not going to want to even look at the food. So, most of these cats that need treatment are going to get a feeding tube. There's three types of feeding tubes we'll often use. The one that I've used a lot is the esophagostomy tube. And we actually put a uh, a tube through their neck right into the yeah. esophagus and it's a very simple procedure to do we make a little skin incision we push that tube right into the esophagus and we're able to then uh, slide that right in the stomach and we can tape it up around their neck with a little bandage and we can feed them very easily the tube sitting in their stomach <laughs> um, nasogastric tubes can be used especially in cats that are really sick and will tolerate it that's where you slide a little tiny tube up their nose and it goes up their nose and the back of their throat, and then they swallow it. And it just it down. stays there? It goes, well, you have to feed it all the way down to the stomach, so it's a long tube.
1: No, I mean, for like a day, days after yeah. they're eating? Right, right. How many you'll, cats leave that in there? You'll
0: Well, you stitch it to the side of their face there, and you put a cone on them, and that's how you do it.
1: Wow. You do it with it.
0: The problem with that tube is it's often smaller than the esophagostomy tubes, so you have to make it has to be a really liquid diet or purary diet because yeah. those tubes can get clogged pretty easily mm. and then the last is a stomach tube we don't like to use that as often a little bit more complications than the yeah. esophagostomy tube, but sometimes that's going to be the best way to do it uh, The cats can't tolerate it. you can't get that esophagostomy tube in. One of the things that we have to be careful of when we're feeding these cats and getting their t- nutrition back is not to get them back too quickly. Mm-hmm. There's a condition where you can actually correct the electrolytes too quickly, and if those get up too high too quickly, it can actually start to affect the brain oh. and cause um, neurologic mm-hmm. symptoms. So we usually start them on a the smaller part of their normal feedings and then gradually increase it over seven days. Our goal is to get them up to 40 to 60 calories per kilogram. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a typical cat's going to be about 4 kilograms, so somewhere between 160 and 240 calories a day. And it's usually going to be a support diet, like our AD is already kind of liquidy and mushy. And we mm-hmm. add a little water to that, that can go down the tube pretty easily. Um, you can also hydrate them that way too, so if the right. owners are going to take the cats home, they can actually continue to give water and food through that. When we're giving them IV fluids, we're going to, again, avoid fluids with glucose and lactate. Because that can worsen that electrolyte depletion and trigger more fatty accumulation in the liver. So it can actually be more harm than good. So we'll stick with like a sodium chloride drip uh, with those type of cats or or other fluids that might have other things in there. Vitamin K for clotting problems. So if we see decreased clotting times, we're going to start on vitamin K. That's going to be given orally or through the stomach tube. Typically, uh, if we're going to be putting in a tube and we know they have clotting factors, we're going to want to actually start the vitamin K before we put the tube in right. because there can always be bleeding, especially when you're doing a, a esophagostomy tube or, or a gastrostomy tube. We're going to also get them on vitamin B supplementation, vitamin B12 shots once a week and mm-hmm. uh, probably some daily B-complex in the fluids that we're giving them. Vitamins uh, B vitamins are just not... Um, Retained in the body that are flushed out by the the kidneys and continue to be a problem deficient in these cats that haven't been eating and sometimes supplementing phosphorus and magnesium may be needed for these cats. There are specific supplements for that. Again, watching those electrolyte levels are going to tell us what's going on. So Mm -hmm. monitoring these cats every day can be very helpful. There is an amino acid called L-carnitine that can actually help improve the fatty acid metabolism and oxidation and the glucose utilization mm-hmm. and decrease that fat accumulation in liver cells. Um, you can't get the L-carnitine you're going to buy in the uh, nutritional store. It has to be medical grade and it has to be dosed properly and we'll give it through that feeding tube. The other important thing when we're treating these cats and supporting them is find if there's anything that causes that we can determine. Mm-hmm. So if there's one of those underlying causes, the diabetes or the pancreatitis, we want to be managing that as well. Because if we don't, they're not going to start yeah, eating no. on their own. We also want to give them uh, medications to help suppress the vomiting. Yeah. So anti-medics uh, will do that. We want to put them on an antibiotic if that's indicated with an underlying problem but generally most of these cats don't need an antibiotic they don't Mm -hmm. have an infection they just got a a bad liver here and then we're going to avoid drugs that can uh, promote fat accumulation in the liver and there's a lot of drugs that can do that Uh, stanzolol is a is a old anabolic steroid. Winstrol mm. was the name of that. We used to use that a lot for skinny cats that we're trying to get some weight on, but okay. that would be totally contraindicated in, in this case. We mentioned for tetracyclines, an antibiotic that can be associated with this. Uh, glucocorticoids or steroids, prednisone, are, yeah. are, are drugs that can do that as well. We're going to also avoid bupivacaine, which is a local anesthetic, mm. and buprenorphine, which is an analgesic, a, um, a narcotic analgesic. And if we have to do anesthesia, Shorter anesthesia, the better, because under mm-hmm. anesthesia, we'll, we'll do that as well. The prognosis in these cats, we always tell people it's guarded.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, in one study, if it was secondary to some other problem, there was about a 20% survival rate. Yeah. Um, but with uh, one one um, research study they did in England, when they did really aggressive medical management, they got about an 80% okay. survival rate of these cats. So it's really important that we get that aggressive medical management going. One of the key prognostic indicators is watching those potassium levels. If those fail to come back up, that's usually telling us things aren't yeah. going, going to go well for that cat. So, if your cat is overweight um, and you're trying to get lose weight, great. Mm-hmm. But if he stops eating, especially for a prolonged period of time, you got to be aware of this. Yeah. And Definitely bring them in. Don't say, hey, hey, great, he's losing weight. That's what yeah. the doctor wanted me to do. We want to lose weight, but not very quickly.
1: Mm-hmm. And usually we don't want cats to go over three days right. without any type of food because usually that's when mm-hmm. all these um, issues are going to start happening. Right.
0: And just if your cat gets lost, if they if you're gone for the week and they just don't seem to be eating and look like a lot of lost weight, bring them in. Let us yeah. take a look. We'll, we'll see how things are going. Mm-hmm. All right, let's move on to pet health news. Okay. The first story we have today uh, concerns cbd oil and there's a lot of these cbd oils that are coming on the market yeah so how do you know they're good or not well the problem is a lot of these are not very good there's no federal standards for cbd oil People can just slap a label on a package and mm-hmm. of olive oil and say it's got CBD oil in it. Yep. But there's products that are on the shelves that have virtually no CBD oil at all. Mm. Uh, there's a, a Cornell University researcher, Joseph uh, Wachschlag, um, who's uh, was working on identifying therapeutic uses for this, okay. said most of these products might have nothing or less than 2 milligrams per milliliter. And what they found is that, In order for the drug to be effective, there has to be at least 25 to 75 milligrams per milliliter. Wow. So when there's a lot of people out there just trying to make a a, a dollar off this, they're trying to take advantage of people who are trying to do the best for their pets. There was a farm bill that was passed recently that lifted a lot of the restrictions on farming hemp. So that's made a lot of this become more affordable and easier to get. Mm-hmm. There, you can find CBD chewies and oils and sprays for their pets. It's basically uh, right now a four hundred million dollar market that's more than grown tenfold since last year. Wow! Expected to reach one point seven billion by twenty twenty three. Unfortunately, the scientific documentation of the efficacy uh, and safety of CBD is not, in pets is non-existent. There's mm-hmm. really been no studies doing this. So this researcher, Cornell, is working to, to publish some of these and do some of these things. And he did find in a small study that there's some increased comfort in that, in that increased activity in dogs with osteoarthritis. Okay. Um, they're working on doing some larger clinical studies, working with the a American Kennel Club, a canine health foundation with that. Um, There's some studies going on with epilepsy that are promising, but Mm. there's not enough data to say that it's a new miracle anticonvulsant drug, mainly using it as an adjunct to other therapies. Um, And seizures are kind of the natural focus because there is a a CBD oil compound that's made for children that have certain types of seizure disorders. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, for pets, it costs about $30,000 a year to get that. Wow. So people are kind of left, I'm not going to spend $30,000 on finding what's out there. Um, The American Veterinary Medical Association has been telling veterinarians that they can share what they know about CBD, but not to prescribe or recommend it for pets. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where we're at right now. Um, We're going to tell people um, there's a lot a lot of information on this. We don't know how effective it is. We don't know the safe doses. You don't know what you're getting in these products. So Mm -hmm. until we know more, wait. And when it comes available, then we'll be able to help you with that.
1: Yep.
0: So the, the FDA is working on developing the regulations for marketing CBD products for pets and people. And this year they sent letters to actually 22 companies citing violations as making claims about therapeutic uses and treatment of diseases that aren't supported by it. Oh, that's good. So if you're going to get a CBD oil product, you're going to have to do a lot of research. Yep. If you want to try it with your pets, again, we can't recommend this. There's just not enough data on it. Um, But unfortunately, we can't stop people from doing it. So be careful, be cautious, do Mm -hmm. your research. And if you're asking your veterinarian for specific advice, don't be upset if they don't give you any, because legally we can't. Mm -hmm. So we're just going to kind of wink and nod at you and uh, see how things go. But once we get more information, we're going to be tracking this uh, issue more as the year progresses. So as we get more information, we'll pass that along to people. But just be aware that a lot of that stuff out there is useless. Mm -hmm. If you do see an effect, it's probably all a placebo effect. Alright. Okay. So we got another story. Well, you got a story here today, Brittany.
1: So what we have this time is we have, uh, two new breeds are actually getting approved by the American Kennel Club this time. Um, and they are two breeds that have been out there for a while. So right. it's nice that they, you know, getting noticed by them. Um, one of them is a powerful breed. Um, it's a big game hunter, very sociable and French water hunter. dog. Yeah. Um, it's the, uh, Doggo Argentine. Um, most people probably have never seen this dog. It's like a big old Mastiff and a King Corso had a baby. Yeah, there's,
0: look, there's a picture of it. It's like a white pity here. Mm-hmm.
1: They're very masculine. I think the smallest they get is about 90 pounds. Yeah, if you're watching us on YouTube, we're
0: going to put up a picture of, of, you, <laughs> of them for a year, but boy.
1: Yeah, they're big. Um, but the Kennel Club announced in December 2019 Um that this dog, the Dogo and Argentino, and another one, the Barbet, um, are going to be part of yeah, the, bar- the pack.
0: Barbet, that's French. Mm-hmm. It's B-A-R-B-E-T, but you say Barbet.
1: Barbet. Uh, yes. um, and that one looks like a big old doodle. <laughs> really cute. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, now they are part of the American Kennel Club's Association, and now they're at- added on, and they are up to 195 breeds that they um, acknowledge now. And so right. these two breeds are actually going to be able to start showing and competing, um, and they can start being in... You know, agility shows or just even show, um, just arena shows now. Yeah. Right. Um, the Argentina Barbet, you know, like Dr. Hosick said, is a big old white dog. They are commonly white and they should always be.
0: Um, but I read something that these dogs don't uh, be careful in the sun. Because they can get sunburned pretty easily, too.
1: I would not be surprised by that. They yeah. are uh, completely, completely white. The thing that I'm surprised is that they're not like death or blind or anything like that. Yeah, we see that um, in, like
0: Dalmatians and mm-hmm. other white dogs and white cats.
1: Mm-hmm, but these breeds were made for hunting. Um, back in the day, they used to h- use them to hunt for wild boars. Wow. Um, so that just shows how big and powerful they are. Because if anyone ever took on a wild boar, they <laughs>
0: are powerful. And I thought they, they also used them for hunting um, mountain lions.
1: Um, but the other one, our sweeter-looking one, the yeah. uh, Barbet.
0: Well, I got a picture of those here, and they're yeah. basically medium-sized dogs, and they got them kind of like poodly hair. Mm-hmm.
1: They're medium-sized, like super out. friendly reputation, often taken to agility contests. Um, they, you know, big, super puffy. Um, they're also called, like, the water dog. Okay. Um, So I'm going to guess maybe they were good for, like, Duck dogs, or yeah, something like that. Uh, retrieving
0: fowls and yeah, retrieving mm-hmm.
1: waterfowls. Yeah, that's um, one of the that they're, they're Yeah, they, you know, back centuries, uh, traditionally finders and retrievers for waterfowls. Yeah. Bar- yeah, barbettes. Yeah, they're doing great. Um, they are affectionate, loyal to owners, um, but do need to caution to make sure that uh oh these are doggos fit um other people's lifestyles. Right, right. The um, dogos
0: they, is is you mentioned to me earlier that they're actually banned in some areas. Mm-hmm. Like
1: they are banned in some places. Um, these are not a new breed. They have been around yeah. for hundreds of years, but um you know, again, they are a big, powerful breed that are very affectionate and loyal to their household. But right. you know, if someone were to grab a dog or something, mm-hmm. that's a lot of power to have. And yeah. a lot of places have though because and, of how big they are.
0: And the Dogos, because they're so loyal, they they can actually be very protective. Mm-hmm. And that's where it gets to be an issue when they're running mm-hmm. other people. So what does it take for a breed to actually get added out to the AKC's list?
1: So most of the time it takes fans um, trying to get their breed out there. Mm-hmm. But it's they spend years trying to build up uh, the recognition by the AKC. Um, it. Takes at least three hundred dogs of one breed to be spread of at least around twenty states.
0: So that's in the United States. Mm-hmm. So American Kennel Club is basically they're not worldwide or just the no,
1: um, but they have to be recognized by at least twenty states. Yeah. And I know the uh, Dogo was probably hard to do that because again, most states have banned them. So the fact yeah. that they're recognized now means
0: well, I'm sure that they're recognized in Argentina and the Barbies are recognized in France. Mm-hmm. And I, I saw that they the Frances ones actually were numbers really really decreased during the wars and they've bred them back, bred to them back in good yeah. numbers so if you're looking for a new breed now, we talked about <laughs> finding the right breed. We've got two more to add to the list here. Yep. Um, so we'll uh, pass those along if we hear any more. And I guess they, they add new breeds all the time. Like almost every year they're adding new breeds.
1: Yeah. They're, and like I said, they're up to like 195 now. Just crazy. Um And they're just adding, each year they're adding more and more new breeds. But again, it just takes recognition and you, they have to they have standards that they have to meet right. to be into those And then those poor judges now have to learn about these yeah. new breeds too. <laughs>
0: Our last story today is actually about the Australian wildfires and ways people can help out, Mm -hmm. Um, sort of by helping out the veterinarians. Yes. So um, we belong to the American Veterinary Medical Association. They have a... charitable group called the American Veterinary Medical Foundation. Yes. And they're going to produce matching funds up to $50,000 of people who are donating to help that's veterinarians good. that have been affected by the fires. And the veterinarians have been affected sometimes as their practices have been burned mm-hmm. their homes have been burned, but also they've been donating their time and supplies to help yes. these animals out. So it helps to support that effort as well. So the uh, funds are going to be um, made available to the Australian Veterinary Association's Benevolent Fund. And that's going to provide a financial assistance to the veterinarians who've lost uh, their own property to do the fires and provided charitable care for the impacted animals. Yeah. Uh, reports have said that there have been deaths of up to 1 billion animals, including mm-hmm. some species only found in Australia, Australia. Further, at least 24 people have died and 2,000 oh. homes have been destroyed. At least 15 million acres Oops. of land have been burned. I heard wow. it was like the size of the state of Indiana. Wow. So if you're looking for a way to help out, um, help out the veterinarians because they're doing their best to help out as mm-hmm. well. And that's the AVMF, the American Veterinary Medical Foundation, and we'll put a link up that on our blog. Yep. Okay. So now we're going to move on to case of the week. Yep. Case of the week. All right. Um, This week we have a dog. Let's see here. Actually, there's a dog and a cat that came in on Mm -hmm. Saturday. And animals aren't sick. They're actually very healthy. But the owners are transporting these animals to Italy. Yes. So one of the big things that we have problems deal with is international travel with our pets. Mm -hmm. There's lots of rules and restrictions and procedures you have to follow. And if you get it wrong, you're going to end up not being able to travel with your pet, or they're going to end up quarantined on the Mm -hmm. other end, or you're going to be paying big fines and stuff. So you want to find one, a veterinarian who's accredited with the USDA, Mm -hmm. because they're the only ones who can sign the international health certificates. You need to make sure um, you visit the APHIS website, A-P-H-I-S. And if you type Google APHIS and travel to Italy with my dog, it'll come up with uh, all the information that you need to make sure you get everything ready. Right. So the animals in a lot of these places need to have an internationally recognizable microchip. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: they need to be vaccinated for rabies. Yes. And one of the things that, uh, because this one of these dogs was a puppy, it had been vaccinated for rabies, and then the microchip was put in. Yes, it has to be the other it way around. You have to get their vaccine first, and then the microchip. So this dog had to get revaccinated for rabies. Oh, so it had been vaccinated four months ago. We have to do, do had it to again. do it again. The other thing is time. These have to usually be done within thirty days, and these, a lot of these international health certificates need to be endorsed by a USDA veterinarian. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Department of Agriculture veterinarian. So it needs to be either taken to their office or mailed to their office. Um, I think there's an office in Chicago. There's one down in Springfield in, in Illinois, but you'd have to look for your individual states where to find that. And that has to be endorsed within 10 days of the animal arriving in Italy.
1: Okay.
0: So there's a lot of steps that have to be done. If something gets wrong, it's mm-hmm. going to be a mess. So make sure you start doing this research months before you're going to yeah. travel. Make sure you work with your veterinary. Make sure that they have the ability to sign these international um, health certificates mm-hmm. and that you get all the paperwork ahead of time f- to make it a lot easier. Yeah. We'll do our best to help you out, but sometimes it may might mean postponing a trip or having the animals travel separately.
1: Well, and then a lot of these things, if you plan on traveling with your pet, make sure it's actually worth it, too. Because most places, even if you get everything correct, you still have to quarantine your pet for weeks or right. months. So if you're only going to be visiting for a week and your dog has to be quarantined for two months, it's not even worth right. it. Right. All the struggle, all the struggle and pain to bring them there. I would just find a city and leave them home. And
0: every country is going to be different. A Mm -hmm. lot of the European Union countries have kind of banded together and had a very similar thing. So you can actually get a pet passport from the European Union that makes things a lot easier. Um, But you have to get it there. So if you're traveling there, talk to a veterinarian there so you can get the pet passport so that if you're going to be going back and forth, you Mm -hmm. can make that travel a lot easier going forward. All right. Now let's move on to tech tips and, um, This has to do with the fact that we had a cat come in the other day (laughs) that gotten all anxious, had pooped and peed in his carrier. We had to take it all apart and stuff. And there's some things that we can do when we're selecting a carrier for a cat Mm -hmm. to make transporting them a lot easier, cleaning a lot easier, examining a lot easier, and yeah. just everything a lot easier. Because there's mm-hmm. lots of different carriers out there, and I've seen them all. Yeah. Uh, it's gone from these little wooden ones with screening on them that have clips that yeah. look like they're homemade, to these newer plastic ones, to the top-opening ones, which I really like. Mm-hmm. And then there's the uh, some that can be uh, disassemble with these screws and wing nuts. Yeah. So what what should people be looking for when they're getting a, a cat carrier, and if they have one of these older cat carriers, what should they be looking to replace it with?
1: Um, so a lot of times when we're looking for cat carriers, <clears throat> we want to pick one that's going to suit your lifestyle for your pet. Um, if you're traveling with your pet in the car and they tend to get stressed out a lot, a lot of times maybe a harder one would be easier for you because at that point you can put in a nice soft bed, you make it padding. There's um, still the vent holes on the side, so. That they can see. Um, And then a lot of times they do have the top opening so it makes it easier to get your pet in and out of the carrier. Um, And then including the front part as well um, a lot of soft carriers tend to zip all the way around which you know if you have a cat that's yeah. really good about getting in a carrier that's fine but if you have a cat that you're struggling to get in there you don't want to have to do a complete 360 with your carrier <laughs> right. and still hope that the cat just sits there and
0: actually some cats actually be able to get their hand in that zipper in the zipper part and open uh-huh.
1: it. yep and make it easier for them to get out well yeah. and then a lot of time these soft ones for cats would Long nails, they tend to get nails caught in them oh, a lot. Yeah. There are a lot of times when we have those soft carriers that we go to get the cat out and they're stuck and we have to cut the nail out of the bed because they're stuck in there. Wow. Um, which, you know, if it was a harder carrier, if you're stuck in the bedding, we'd just take the cat and the bed all out at the same time. Yep. You, you, these softer ones, we have to take apart a whole carrier.
0: Yeah. Um, it's nice when you just slide the bed out and the with the cat on it and out. they're
1: comfortable sitting on their bed. Right. Um, the harder ones, you know, again, they're great carriers, but the thing about about those too sometimes like you said there's the nuts and everything that you have to twist apart and if you lose some pieces then I guess maybe you can go online and try to find replacement nuts and bolts for these things but a lot of times they have up to eight screws that you have to go around the carrier and depending on what's how many pieces you lose these carriers can just fall apart right we've we've had times where owners were carrying the carriers and they've only had like four screws in and next thing we know the bottom piece falls and the cat's just running down the clinic. And so we have to give them one of our little box ones, right. which isn't as great, but it gets the cat home. Right. Um, so the hard ones are great, but you have to make sure you keep all the pieces together. Right. Um, and then a lot of them have like the metal doors that do tend to rust up. You know, depending on how you're storing these carriers, um, if you're leaving it outside in a garage or something like that, um, these can get rusted and it can be hard to open and close the latches on these doors, which make it really hard to get the cat in or out the carrier right. sometimes. Um, and then you do just want to be careful doing that because you want to make sure that the latch is completely closed because if it if you pinch it together and it stays together and you think the door is closed. The door's just gonna swing wide open and your cat's just gonna get out.
0: Yeah. Um, now, I've seen some of these um, carriers you mentioned how hard it is to do those nuts and bolts. They have actually easy opening little clamps that yeah. hold. Yeah. And they just flip up and lock down. Mm hmm. Um, and I assume those are more expensive, which is why more people don't have them. But yeah. those make it really easy.
1: Those are really nice. Um, and it is really easy, again, if the cat's cooperative.
0: Right. A lot. So but sometimes when we're seeing them in the clinic, we we can't pull them out of the carrier to get really mad. If we can mm-hmm. take the top off the carrier, off. Yeah. I can do the exam while they're sitting in the carrier. Mm-hmm. And we don't even actually have to take them out of the carrier, but, yeah. so they feel safe. So the easier that is to do, so sometimes I come in and people are unscrewing and nuts. like, oh, yep. I wish they had one of those carriers.
1: Yep, you just pop it off um, and then just reclamp yeah, it got back like in. Yeah,
0: eight little clips or something that just lock and right in place. Yeah,
1: those are really cool. Um, you know, just like with any carrier, though, they do have their faults. You have to line them up perfectly right. to clamp them because I've seen this happen a lot, too, where the owner clamps the top back on, think they're doing fine, pick it up, but the bottom's still sitting on the table with the cat. And you're just like, ma'am, you left your cat. Um, so you make sure these Uh are lined up and you want to hear this snap that the carrier has been closed um one of my favorite carriers and i think it was just the cutest thing i don't know if they did this purposely but it looked like a picnic basket and it was plastic and we thought the owner came in with a picnic basket we're like where's your cat and she puts the basket on the table Uh but lo and behold the top flat parts that open up There was just breathing holes, and then there was one little clear piece so the cat could see up and everything. It was an actual cat carrier. It was a carrier. And it was so cool because I just thought the lady was coming from a picnic. And I was like, did you kind of pick up medications or something? No, she was here for an appointment. And it was... For me, that was really cool. And it was one of the most simplest baskets I have ever seen. Those ones, I've looked online, those ones are really expensive. Yeah. And it could just be because how simple it is. You can't break it down or anything, but you have two openings just like a picnic basket. You have two clamps to the side, and then the two middle pieces just fold up. And so your cat can decide which way they want to come out of. Um, it is sturdy. was a nice size carrier. Right. The cat seemed really comfy. You know, we were able to go on one end and kind of just push the cat out the other which was great. Um, That one was fun and everything. But the thing I didn't like about it was, again, you couldn't break it down or you couldn't do anything yeah. about it. So if your cat got really nervous or fractious, you're kind of just stuck there right. with it. I mean, I guess you, you yeah. could tip it out if you needed to. Um but it was still really cool looking. Nice. Um, but there are just so many options out there for cat baskets. We do know owners who have cats that, you know, you get a kitten and you never bring it back to the clinic. And so now your push comes a shove. We have owners that bring them in in laundry baskets. Not good. Not good at all. Those, uh, you, you make makeshift carriers yeah. are not good. Yeah. We have the soft ones, which aren't good. Again, the cats can get their the nails cases. caught in it, the pill cases. Um, you want to make something sturdy where they feel comfortable right. in, something that is nice and airy and breathable. It's a good investment,
0: uh, a good cat carrier, because mm-hmm. you should be bringing the cat to the vet at least once a year. At if least. you have an emergency, you want to get them used to that. Mm-hmm. Now, when people are traveling with their cats, there's some restrictions on some of these carriers mm-hmm. that the airlines have because they have to fit yes underneath the seat in front of you Mm -hmm. so there are special carriers made for airline travel right yes
1: um so special carriers for those and most of them are like the uh nut and bolt ones so it are it is like the three-piece carrier where there's the bottom the top and the door Mm -hmm. um they do not want the ones with the wire top that you can open the tops they want the ones where there's only one opening right um but you can have the ones where the they have the top piece where there are extra bowls and you can hide food, treats, and things like that. That is okay, but you do have to announce that you have all these things for your pet on that yeah. part of the carrier. Um, and then they do come in multiple sizes, but you have to be able to get the... Um, carrier in front of you like you said so if you want to have your cat get some extra room you can go up a size for the carrier but at the same time you can't do a size for a great day and i think you're just going to be able to have your cat sit in front of you that's not going to happen no
0: they have to be able to slide in there and Mm -hmm. they won't let the cat on the plane if that carrier won't fit in that Mm -hmm. space so research that before you go. Yeah. All right. A lot of good tips for traveling. So if you are going to be traveling, like we mentioned with the health certificate issue, yep. uh, most airlines are going to require that too. Take that time to check. ask you, hey, is this carrier going to be good? Mm-hmm. Uh, check with the airlines. They'll oftentimes give you pictures of the type of carriers that they accept. Mm-hmm. So make sure. And if you're traveling a lot, invest in a nice carrier that's yep. going to be comfortable for the cats. All right, well, that's it we have for this week. Yeah. I would like to remind people if you're enjoying the podcast, go ahead and follow us. If you're on YouTube, subscribe. Make sure you minimize it. I think the button's underneath Brittany here.
1: Maybe down there. Yeah. Right. Okay. somewhere there. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. Um, uh, the more followers and subscribers you get, that way you'll never miss uh, an episode and we'll yeah. let you know as soon as it comes up. Um, next week, we're going to be talking about ear hematomas, yeah. which is blood fills up in the ear. So that's a really kind of interesting yeah. thing. So we'll see you next time. I'm Dr. Jim Hosekin. I'm Brittany. Bye. You've been listening to The Pet Factor with Dr. Jim Osik and Brittany Reed.